0: Revelation 20, and I'm reading from verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that was in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone, The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the (sighs) nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word.
1: I'm going to pray and then we'll look at this glorious, glorious passage together. Our Father, we pray, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Father, only by your spirit can our hard hearts learn to hope in heaven and not in earth. Only by your spirit can our unbelieving hearts believe these things are true and real and rich. And so, Father, we pray for his help now. Amen. The talks will get shorter as the weekend goes on, just so you know. This is the longest talk, but it's on heaven, and heaven lasts forever. Uh, <laughs> let me just say two things to you as we, um, as we contemplate our eternal destiny. You'll find there's an outline, and, the, uh, and it's at the top of the first talk there. Two things as we contemplate our eternal destiny. Firstly, you are all liars, every single one of you. And secondly, you will not go to heaven when Jesus returns. You are all liars. I can, I can tell a time that every single person in this room has told a big, fat whopper of a lie. Genuinely. Every single one of you here. It's when you said it might have been on holiday or out for dinner with friends or on your wedding or some point like that, and you said, it just can't get any better than this. When you said that, you were lying. You were lying. The truth is it can and it will get unimaginably better than the very best you've ever experienced on earth. The promise of the Bible is that the world will change and if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny is to spend time in a place which is richer, deeper, truer and no longer polluted by sin, a place of unimaginable pleasure and you will change your capacity for pleasure will grow and swell and you will no longer be polluted by sin either. You told a big fat lie when you said it can't get any better than this. You have never known the day, the moment that is anything close to as good as the most ordinary day in the new creation. Secondly, uh, you won't go to heaven when Jesus returns. I'm not pronouncing on your eternal destiny at this point. Uh, I'm not talking that you're condemned. My point is that there is a lot of confusion about heaven, and heaven is not actually the place we will go to when Jesus returns. Heaven means uh, two different things in the Bible. It is just another word for the stars above us. So Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. Heaven's just another name for the skies, that which is literally, it's just that which is above us. And so heavens just means that, stars, skies. But because of that, the Bible also talks about heaven as the the realm, the place where God dwells now, because God is uh, figuratively, if you like, above us. And so the same word that describes the sky is used to describe the realm where God dwells. And you can understand why they do that. Uh, and you see, you see it used like that um, in 2 Chronicles 6, 21, when, when the temple is dedicated. Lord, when we pray to this temple on earth, hear us from heaven where you dwell. Or Jesus repeats a similar idea in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. We've only been going three minutes, so you can afford um, to think hard and do some theology at this point. So uh, theologian Stephen Charnock explains, God is present in a more intense and glorious way in heaven, although he is present everywhere. He says, heaven is the court of God's majestical presence, not the prison of his essence. Do you get that? So it's not the prison of his essence as if God is confined to heaven. That's the only place he is. He's everywhere. But in heaven, he is present in a different way. He is present in his full blazing glory. If you like, uh, when you're in a plane and you are um, taking off from Heathrow, you don't see the sun in its glory. Its rays actually do penetrate the clouds, but you, don't, you, 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 you can't see them in the same way as when the plane comes up through the clouds. Then you see the sun in its full glory. You know, it's still light on the ground in Heathrow, but it's, it's not the same. And God is fully, majestically, gloriously seen in heaven in a way which he's not present in exactly the same way on earth. Okay, don't worry. That's the, that's the hard thinking over with. Now, uh, if we die before Jesus returns, our spirits go to be with God in heaven. That's what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. His body will die and be thrown into a pauper's grave near Jerusalem, but his spirit will go to be with God in heaven. It's what Paul says in Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. He knows that the best thing that could happen to him is for his earthly body to be killed so his spirit can go to be with God in heaven. But God's plan for eternity is for new bodies that live in a new world, physical Creation. So if you like the order, you've got it down there. Jesus' return will be followed by the resurrection of our bodies, new physical bodies. We will then stand as resurrected beings before God in judgment. And then those who trust in Jesus will enter the new creation. Okay. Right. The great Christian leader, C.H. Spurgeon, urged us in these words which are on your sheets. Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help you press on and to forget the toil of the way. This veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of bliss. And after death, what comes? What wonder world will open upon our astonished sight? Great. The problem is that we struggle to fire our hearts with the hope of heaven because, well, we have such an inadequate idea of what the new creation will actually be like. Uh, Either we haven't thought about it enough to have any real ideas, or the ideas we have are thoroughly uninspiring, if we're honest. I love it. Uh, Prime Minister David Lloyd George uh, commented, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services, from which there would be no escape. Yeah, that doesn't sound much like fun. Or perhaps we imagine heaven in the way it's depicted in the movies. Soft light, serene people gliding effortlessly in flowing robes. Nothing too bright or loud. And have you noticed? Everybody's always in bare feet in heaven. As if you know, Shoes are of the devil. It's it's kind of it's more spiritual than physical. If you like, it's it's like the elves in the Lord of the Rings. You know, very serene and and deep and spiritual. But let's be honest, rather dull. I mean, you wouldn't go there for a party. And it's no surprise that a vision like that doesn't motivate or inspire us to serve and to sacrifice for God in this life. I mean, why would you? That's not a reward any of us really want. And unless you and I get a solid grasp of the reality of the future God has promised, we will have nothing to fire our hearts. Unless we get a solid grasp of heaven, we'll have nothing to motivate us to serve and to sacrifice for Christ now in this life. We'll have no, no hope to offer the people around us who are dying in this world. And instead, our lives will be shaped by the same thing as theirs, the same earthbound hopes of careers, financial security, and relationships. And we will be enslaved like them by the fear of losing these things. We'll be utterly incapable of living wholeheartedly for God now and utterly incapable of drawing others to the great eternal hope of God for the future. Now, the early church had such a vision of heaven that one of the common problems was that they had to dissuade the young men from seeking martyrdom because they were so keen to get to heaven. It was you know, Christian and duff, you know, the ministry trained, please, will you stop signing up for missionary trips to Saudi Arabia? You know, do you how any idea how hard it is to rewrite the rotors every time one of you gets killed? I know heaven's going to be great, but seriously, think of other people, will you? you know, that, that's like a common conversation in the early church. That's not a problem we have. Why? It's because we struggle to imagine what the new creation will really be like. Martin Luther famously said, we can no more conceive of what heaven will be like than a baby in the womb can imagine what life will be like after birth. And when we turn to God's word, we find the Bible often uses weird apocalyptic language. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, no mind can conceive of what God has planned, but God has revealed it in his word. But the problem is when we turn to that word, we find sort of weird apocalyptic language, especially in the book of Revelation. Now, in apocalyptic literature, there's symbols and particular numbers and images, and it's all a bit sort of odd, and things are often significant and symbolic rather than literal. So you can tell that because the images, uh, they often don't fit together. So in Revelation 4, 6, we read, there's a sea as clear as crystal before the throne of God. And then in Revelation 21, 1, there is no longer any sea. Well, is there or isn't there? Well, it's, they're making different points. It's, it's an apocalyptic way, when it says there's no longer any sea, of saying there's no longer any chaos. Because in Hebrew thinking, sea was watery, decreative chaos. Genesis chapter 1 at the start, the world is formless and void, and the spirit hovers over the waters. Genesis 6-8, to when God judges and destroys the wickedness of the world, he does it by returning it to watery chaos in the flood. And so he's not saying there will be no water in the new creation. There'll be no surfing or sailing. He means there'll be no chaos, no destruction, no decreation. I mean, geographers here will know. It describes in Revelation 22 a river flowing from the throne of God. The rivers kind of have to flow into something. There's going to be a sea. It's just saying there won't be chaos. And in that sense, Revelation works a bit like a cartoon, apocalyptic literature. When Tom hits Jerry around the head with a frying pan, the stars and little Tweety birds appear around his head. And we kind of get, oh, it's saying it really hurt and he's got a a stonking headache. And the numbers and the symbols in Revelation work like that. The point is that they're seeking not just to engage our intellect, but also to fire our imagination, Revelation is de- designed uh, not just to give us technical arguments to understand, but to but images to fire our imagination, and that might be in part because I'm just not sure we could understand a straight literal description of the new creation. I'm not even sure we've got the words for it. You know, what words could God use to describe the new creation? Can you conceive of a uh, describe a new color that doesn't exist? Uh, I mean, imagine uh, trying to describe a jumbo jet to a Stone Age tribe. They don't have the words for jet, engine, petrol, aerodynamics, obviously, and metal. Well, it's kind of like a very big bird that hundreds of people can climb in, and it's powered by fire and it goes faster than sound. So, like, I'm guessing that's clear, yeah? Uh, I mean, how close do you think they are to a real understanding of concord from that description? How close do you think you can get them to a real understanding of it using the things that they understand now? And as we read Revelation, you and I, we are that limited, primitive tribe, grasping to get our heads around things that are way beyond us when we don't even have the words to describe what it really will be like. Now, J.I. Packer um, suggests that there are three ways that we can, though, fire our hearts with the hope of heaven. And they fit with the three points we've got, the, the applications of the three points. He says, the Bible fires our imaginations with the hope of heaven by teaching us to, it. well, he says extrapolate, but exploit's probably easier. Exploit, enhance, and eliminate. So, exploit earthly pleasures. Uh, Every time you enjoy something on this earth, it's like the new creation is like a new and better version of it. So as we exploit what we enjoy now, we get a hint of the new creation. Secondly, to enhance. Uh, It's an enhancement of the divine relationship, the fulfillment of that relationship we've already got with Jesus now. That's what we're heading to. And then finally, eliminate earthly frustrations. It is like life, sort of as we know it, but without all the the misery and the frustration of of life in this world, in this creation. Okay, we're going to use that as as the way to apply each of the points. Okay, let's get into Revelation. We're just going to focus actually on 21, 1 to 5, which summarizes the whole section which Emily read for us just now. And Revelation 21 to 22, obviously, is the climax of John's vision of the future and also the climax of the whole Bible story. It's the final act of world history and the first act of the new age that is to come. So firstly, new creation exploits. So Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The first verse of the Bible begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we read that the day is going to come when God will again roll up his sleeves and with a power matched only by his delight, will speak a new word. And the physical reality we live in now will just cease to exist. And as he speaks another word, a brand new physical cosmos will come into being. But this one won't just be very good It'll be permanent and perfect. It's a mind-boggling thought that physical matter just appears or vanishes at the word of God. And as he sings out another word, a new creation comes into being. Now, uh, there is a surprising amount we can learn just from these few words. First, it will be a physical universe. We know that because it's described as a, a new heavens and a new earth. And they are physical in the Bible. It's described exactly in the same words as the existing physical creation, the cosmos that we live in. So God's not going to get rid of physical matter and we float around on, on clouds. There'll be another version of what we have now. You'll, it'll be solid ground in the new creation that you can stand on. There will be a, a degree of continuity, if you like. You'll recognize, oh, this is a, this is a, a new world. A new, if you like, it's creation 2.0. But having said that, we will also be very different. It will be new. It'll be creation 2.0, not 1.2. It's not just a sort of tune-up of the existing one, a patch up of the problems we've got. No, it's a fresh start. Okay, what else can we say about it? Well, we get hints. Uh, we get hints as the passage goes on that it's a city, but it's 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 a garden city. In 22, there are trees and rivers. So it's it's like Eden, but developed, perfected, matured. I mean, what a city it is as well. I don't know if the description in 9 to 21 of this jeweled city is to be taken literally. I doubt it. Uh, partly because it doesn't uh, talk about the most precious gemstone of all, diamonds. Because they, they weren't known in the ancient Near East at the time. Uh, so I doubt that it is meant to be literal. It's just using the most precious things that they knew then. So pearls were the most precious stone at the point, And the entire gate's are solid pearl. One solid pearl each. But it is stunning, whatever. Uh, they're, they're building a, a huge tower just near us at the moment because there aren't enough huge towers of very expensive um, accommodation in London at the moment, apparently. And it's, uh, and they're, they're sinking the foundations, which is a joy when you're sitting at home trying to work as the pile driver gets going. And it's these enormous holes which are filled with sort of 40-foot reinforced steel concrete um, what do they call them? Uh, piles. I mean, incredible things. And this city also has serious foundations. But when, you're, uh, when your streets are made of gold as pure as glass, you're never going to use steel and concrete. The, f- the foundations are gemstones. And the point, I think very simply, is this is going to be a place of stunning beauty, of perfect quality. Now, there are hints, too, that uh, the best of all human culture and technology will be there. Look with me at 21:24 uh, to 26. The nations will walk by its light, the light of the Lamb of God, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the city. On no day will its gates be ever shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. I love the British Museum. I think it's a fantastic place. It celebrates, actually, everything uh, that... Britain is brilliant at, namely looting treasures from the rest of the world. Uh, Nobody does that quite the way we do it. And Revelation 21, 24 to 26, it hints that the new Jerusalem, this new creation, this city will be like the the British Museum and that all that is beautiful and glorious of the nations will be brought in, except it'll be brought in voluntarily. The nations will want to bring everything that is rich and good in as an offering to God in his new creation city. Uh, the best of music, the best of sport, the best of culinary expertise, the best of art and architecture and technology, all of it will be there, it seems. So if you like, the, the new creation will have French cooking and Swiss watches and German cars, just not diesels, um, uh, American customer service, Brazilian football, Australian weather, Rwandan coffee and English sarcasm. all of it will, All of it will be there in the new creation. Now, Jim Packer says, we should exploit the things we enjoy now to help us imagine what life will be like then. And think of all that is good and glorious now. Uh, think of the things, if I, if I told you, if I did tell you this, say you're wrong, but if, if let's say, thought experiment, I tell you, Jesus really is coming back tonight at 9pm. Now, I guess we'll be excited, but there'll also be, let's be honest, there's a bit of you that thinks, oh, I'll miss, what is it you'll miss? those things that make you kind of quite like life on this old earth. Whatever those things are, they will be a whole lot better in the new creation. Think of the things you love about this creation. And the Bible seems to use those as pictures to drive our imaginations, to delight in, to enjoy the new creation. In your own time, look at Isaiah 65, 17 uh, to, uh, to 25, and you'll see how Isaiah picks up on things we love now, to excite us about that that heavenly future. You know, when you when you enjoy something on this earth, teach yourself to view it as a dull hint, shadow of what is to come. When you eat an amazing meal with friends on holiday, and it is just magical, talk, pray. Thank you, God, for this hint, this foretaste, this smell of what is to come. Thank you that the wedding feast of the banquet of the Lamb will be so much better than this. Exploit every good thing, every good thing we enjoy on earth as a foretaste of heavenly pleasure. Skiing, chocolate, sport, sex, sunsets, steak, wine, laughter, friendship, all of it is designed to teach us, to help us imagine what is to come. They are to the new creation what the, the smell of food is to the reality that you eat. And, of course, every time you see somebody showing off their nice new diamond ring, think, ah, foundation rubble for my new house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's just an extraordinary thought, isn't it? Uh, So, um, new creation. Secondly, new relationship. New relationship that we should enhance. A new creation is an amazing thought, but actually what comes next is the most important thing of all. So verses 2 to 3 of Revelation 21, at the heart of the new creation is a new relationship with the Lord our God. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's a vision of the populated city. Now, it's odd. It's described as, a, as the bride. I've never met a, a bride who would be pleased to say, wow, you look just like a city. You know, that's, that's not a compliment to, to a bride on her wedding day. And it just seems odd because actually when you think of it, throughout the Bible, the bride of God is the people of God, not some city. Ephesians 5.32. Marriage, marriage is just a picture of the glorious reality The real thing is the relationship of God and his people. And so what's going on? Well, the point is he calls the new Jerusalem, this city, God's bride, because the city is where God's people dwell. It's the populated city that that descends and is the bride of Christ. Now, the two key things, believe it or not, about this city are its shape and its size. Oddly, its shape and its size. Firstly, um, let's look at 15 to 16, and then we'll work out why. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold. Well, he would do. Everything's of gold up there. To measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles, or 2,200 kilometers in new money. Its shape matters it's a cube, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. There is only one other cube in the entire Bible. Do you know where it is? The only other cube in the Bible is in the temple, at the heart of the temple, the most holy place. Now, the Old Temple had different courts with different degrees of access to the symbolic presence of God, and depending on how clean you were and how, um, which. Tr- if you were a priest, you know, you had access to different parts of it. But the most holy place at the very heart of the temple was this cube-shaped room, uh, not, nothing like as big as that, this cube-shaped room that God's presence was said to most intensely, symbolically dwell. And that was a place that only one human could go in and only once a year and only after sacrifice. The, most, uh, the high priest, after sacrificing once a year. And here, he says, the entire city where God's people dwell is the most holy place. Every single one of us will dwell in perfect relationship with God. So we're told in uh, verse 22, uh, there's no separate temple. God dwells with his people. God's dwelling is among the people and he will dwell with them. Its shape tells us that all of us will live in the most holy place, in the most perfect relationship with God. Its size is also very important because you've got to think, readers of John's day, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, isn't just big. It basically covers the known world. That's the point. The city where God's people dwell face to face with God fills the whole known world. In other words, it's saying the city, the place where we dwell, we're all in relationship with God, and this city is the size of the world. It is for everybody in the new creation. It's big enough for all God's people to dwell there. I don't think it's meant to be taken literally, but sometimes it's fun to do that with Revelation. And uh, imagine if this was a literal description. And because it's, you know, it's the heavenly new creation, you have nice high ceilings. Say 25 foot, that's a nice high ceiling. If it's 25 foot ceilings, uh, then you've got 250,000 floors in the new creation. 250,000 floors, each with 2 million, roughly, 2 million square feet. That is, sorry, 2 million square miles, 2 million square miles. 250,000 floors of 2 million square miles. Even if you like a bit of space for me time, there is enough space to house billions comfortably in this new city. And I don't think it's even meant to be literal. It's just a, a, a picture, a vision. Their concept of the known world was much smaller than ours. Who knows how big the real thing will be? The point is, you and I, every single follower of Jesus, will dwell in the most intense, rich, joyful, face-to-face relationship with God. None of us will be on the fringes. It won't be like one of those weddings. You know, uh, the weddings you get invited to where you only know one of the couple and you don't know them that well. Uh, It's from work. And... You you get to the reception and you check a couple of times because you think, I'm not sure I really ought to be invited to the reception. And you have to check. Uh, and you know not to look near tables one, two, three, or four. You kind of, you start at the, the other end to look. Oh, yep, there I am. And you find your table, which is right over in the far corner. And it's, uh, and you, it's the kind of table that's like Monsters, Inc. It's, uh, <laughs> there, is, there is the slightly strange cousin with the high who <laughs> and, and And one or two other people. And it's just, you know... You're kind of there, but you're a long way from the action. It won't be like that in the new creation. God wants all of us in his most holy place. None of us are in the outer courts. None of us are on the back table. All of us are in his most holy place. The place where no human could go is a place where every human would dwell. And that's your destiny if you trust in Christ. Okay, what's the take-home of the whole city being the most holy place? I think the, most, the biggest thing is beware of you of heaven where God is incidental. His main role is to keep the sun shining in the day, the snow falling at night, and the wine flowing at mealtime. Now, he is at the very heart of the vision of heaven because he is the deepest fulfillment of his people. So John 17, 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, Or as Augustine then put it a few centuries later, oh, our God, you made us for yourself and our hearts. (laughs) They're restless until they find rest in you. Jesus is the bridegroom of his people, the church. That's his place in heaven. I mean, imagine a wedding where the groom doesn't turn up. You say to the bride, oh, come on, why the long face? I mean, there's food, there's wine, there's all your friends, there's lots of expensive presents, all for you. I mean, is it really that big a deal the groom didn't turn up? Don't try that. At the heart of the the heart of the wedding day is the for the bride is the groom. And deep within you and me is a need for God and relationship with God, which is far, far deeper and stronger than a bride's longing for her groom on her wedding day. Jesus Christ is at the heart of John's vision of the new creation, because Jesus Christ is what your heart most longs for and most deeply needs. Jim Packer says um, that we should exploit the new creation to take things from the old one and imagine better in the new and that we should enhance the new relationship. He's saying the relationship that we have with God now will be enhanced better in the new creation. So if you enhance what we know of relationship with God already in this world, you get an inkling of what is to come. Uh, Two thoughts on that. Firstly, it is clear that this is the climax of the Bible's teaching about relationship with God. And that means that what is described of relationship with God here is better than anything we've read before in the Bible. So when the Israelites gather at Mount Sinai and fire and thunder descend and the Lord speaks in an audible voice, what we will have in the new creation is better than that. Yeah, I guess most of us actually aren't. Don't struggle to imagine that. What we will have is, is better than when the, the worshippers gathered at Jerusalem for the great golden marvel that was the first temple and saw the presence of God descend upon it in a cloud and fill the temple. Okay, yeah. We can imagine that what we'll have in the new creation will be better than that. It'll also be better than what the disciples had for three years on earth when they walked with the Lord Jesus physically. Hmm. Really? Oh yeah, it'll be much better than that. You see, the disciples on earth, they only saw Jesus' glory veiled. They could only see him as human and had glimpses of the divine. When we see the Lord Jesus in heaven, we will see him fully human and fully divine, all his glory revealed. Our relationship with him will be better than the disciples enjoyed. Our relationship with him will be better than Adam and Eve had. See, when they walked in the cool of the evening in the garden with the Lord God, they knew him as the generous and glorious creator who'd given them everything. When you and I walk with God in the cool of the evening in the new creation, we will know him also as the merciful redeemer who sacrificed himself. We'll know him as the lamb who was slain and has risen now to reign. What we have will be better. Secondly, of course, it means that when we pursue relationship with God now, when we really devote ourselves to his word and prayer, uh, proper, not tick box exercise, phone off, devoted time, we are diving into the purest source of pleasure the universe knows. We may only get hints of it now in our distracted and our sin-corrupted hearts, but when we press into relationship with God now, we are pursuing the greatest source of pleasure the creation knows. And when we finally meet the Lord Jesus, it'll be, going like, be like going from receiving letters from a loved one to seeing them face to face. I'm not a particularly poetic man, but I love this um, poem that John Donne wrote. Um, and the, the culmination of the poem reads like this. I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory, and shine myself as the sun shines. I shall be united to the ancient of days, to God himself who had no morning and never began. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. That brings us to the last point, the whole new order. Revelation 21, 4 to 5, as we finish. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now we'll think more tomorrow about what will happen to us, to our physical bodies, in the new creation. Uh, but Jim Packer says that the third way we stir our hearts about heaven is to think about what is eliminated in the new order. And John writes here that tears are wiped away, and then there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There's a typo I saw in my notes as I went through them yesterday. and written um, M-O-R-N-I-N-G rather than M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I'm not sure whether the, the, the whole concept of mourning itself will be gone, but Monday morning, I'm pretty sure, will be gone in the new creation. But the last time you cry, it will be God who wipes the tears from your eyes. And after that, you will never feel the need to cry again. Because Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse. All the ugliness, the hatred, the malice, the perversion, the brutality, the deceit and the pain that poured into our world through our sin all of it will be shut out, banished forever, destroyed. Think back to all the things that made you cry in the course of your life. Not tears of laughter, there'll be loads of those in heaven, but think of all the things that made you weep or sob in your life. What caused those tears? Physical pain, dentist drills, broken bones, arthritis, Crohn's disease, slipped discs, none of that in the new creation. Betrayal by someone you loved and trusted and opened your heart to. Perfect relationships in the new creation, no sin. Pain of an ugly breakup that left you feeling worthless and rejected. It will be perfectly restored. No relationship will break up in the new creation. Death itself. You could spend 10 million years traveling the farthest reaches of the galaxy in the new creation, and you will not come across a cemetery or even a solitary gravestone. And you will never again cry bitter tears as you watch the coffin of a loved one lowered into the ground. Everything, everything that causes sorrow, regret, and pain will be wiped away. Sin, and all that causes sin, will be shut out at twenty-one twenty-seven, promises nothing impure will be able to enter the city in 2010 at the beginning of our reading we heard the devil was thrown into the lake of fire it's not just that we won't want to sin in the new creation there'll be no temptation anywhere we won't be able to even if we wanted to it just won't even be possible it won't be ruined the way this creation was ruined How do you answer the question, is God good? It's a question that slips quietly into our minds when we're weighing up whether to serve and sacrifice for God now. It's a question that slips into our minds as we, as we determine how wholehearted to be in the Christian life. Is it worth serving him? Can he be trusted to repay me for what I give up for him? Can he be trusted with my life, my future, Is he good? Now, for most of us, the the initial response, if we're honest, is we look around. Is God good? Well, what does my life feel like? Uh, We look at the stuff he's given. Has he given me the stuff I hoped for in this life? Has he given me what my other Christian friends have got? But as we mature, we learn not to look out at the stuff of our lives, but to look back. Look back to the cross. Is God good? He gave his own son when I was a sinner to die on the cross for me. God is good because of what he's done in history. But actually, that's not quite enough. We need also to learn to look forward. Is God good? Look at what he's promised for your future. He is very good. The writer Randy Alcorn, brilliant name, um, as if I'm in any place to say, but uh, anyway, he, uh, he says, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, or drugs, or alcohol, or a new job, or a raise, or a doctorate, or a spouse, or a house, or a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus Christ, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing else can truly satisfy. And when we enter the new creation on that first day, something deep inside us will say, I am home at last. Now the life that is really life can truly begin. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful way of stirring our imagination for that day. And on the very last page of The Last Battle, he writes these words to picture that that moment, that entry. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. Dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I simply cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Our Father God, we thank you that our future is unimaginably great Thank you for all that you have promised to us. And thank you for the pictures you've given us. We pray that as every time we enjoy what is rich and good and pure on this world, that we would learn to think of it and view it as a foretaste of what we'll have in paradise. Every time we feel a closeness to you on our own in Bible study or gathered in corporate worship, help us to, help us to see that as, a, as the hint of that wonderful face-to-face relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time we weep and we groan with the pain and the frustration and disappointment of this world, help us to remember that one day all of that will be gone. Father, thank you that there will be no question in our heart that you are good when we have had our first taste of life in your new creation. Amen.